Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Coffee Breaking on Safe Space. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021. I'm Carter Laren, and I'm joined as always by the lovely Carrie, new last name, Garcia. KS, I got to change it to KSG, Mama Jama. Yeah. Yeah. Before Twitter bans you with the wrong handle, right. that would be horrible. Right. Hello, Carter. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm all right. I'm real excited about today. If it's your first time here at Unsafe Space, this is a live show we do Mondays and Fridays called Coffee Break. And Fridays, we've been doing casual Fridays where we just hang out with friends and we try and bring a little levity to the state of the world, the state of the news. And right? Well, Isn't let's that... do some announcements. Yeah, we do. Let's do some announcements so we don't have to okay. bore our friends with Book Club. Book Club is on Sunday, this Sunday. At noon Pacific. Uh, if you're like Carrie, it's a good time <laughs> to get the audiobook and start it so you can finish by Sunday. <laughs> um, if you're like me, you can feel superior because you've already read three or four chapters. So you're way ahead. Uh, so <laughs> the book is Catch 22 by Joseph Heller, which I had never read. Um, it's kind of weird so far. Um, so yeah, you can join us for that. You can be. Uh, in the chat, or you can be actually on camera if you want to be. Uh, what else do we have going on? We still have, we have a little bit of room in our retreat for August. So go to unsafespace.com and you can get it. I think we have a couple beds and lots of day passes left. Um, what, what am I missing, Carrie? And if you like the video, you can share, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on, we are also on Odyssey Library. And you can always find us at unsafespace.com when they ban us from this channel we'll be streaming somewhere else. So you can find us there. And if you want to support the show financially, we have lots of ways to do that on the site, including Subscribestar. Awesome. And there's probably merch somewhere, but you'll find that on the cool. site and I don't want to talk about it anymore. Okay. So <laughs> with that sales pitch in mind, let's introduce our two guests for today. Carrie, do you want to do the honors? Yeah, I'm so excited today. I, one of my favorite parts about doing Casual Fridays is bringing different people together who haven't met yet. So today we have two people who come from the entertainment world. We have Cameron Pasha, he's a screenwriter. We've had him on before. Hello, Cameron. Great to see and you, Carrie Garcia now. Carrie Garcia. <laughs> it sounds like an ice cream. And we also today have my friend Jared Bauer, who is the founder of Wisecrack. How's it going, guys? Thanks Nose. for having me. Hey, Jared. Good to, good to see you. Yeah. Are you now you are brothers with Jack Bauer, who saves the world on a regular basis, right? Um, you know, I've actually not seen 24, but I used to get that all the time. And as a matter of fact, I have like a counter-terrorist unit shirt that I bought that has Bauer in the back because I was aware of the cultural reference, but uh, never actually watched the show. Well, Keith I Sutherland liked it the first couple of seasons. But... Keeper Sutherland said he's never seen the show. Oh, that's 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 awesome. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was on that's Letterman or something. I was like, and Letterman's like, are, are you crazy? It's actually a pretty good show. So yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's I wonder if that's because you he can't watch himself perform. Some people probably yeah. can't do that. It probably breaks the illusion completely, and you just can't really immerse yourself in the narrative. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he's like, oh my god, I torture people. That's I'm a horrible person. Well, 
I have to take some credit for actually having an effect on 24's uh, overall arc. You know, our show Sleeper Cell, uh, you know, that I was on, came on sort of at the height of, of when 24 was the biggest show in, in the world. And ours was, you know, labeled as a sort of more accurate vision of the war on terror because it was about a Muslim FBI agent infiltrating Al Qaeda. And we showed how, you know, incompetent the FBI is and how, uh, how the system really works. And the, the cultural result of that is that, you know, for the first maybe five or six seasons, 24 had your standard Muslim villain that Jack Bauer was kicking ass of in, in 15 minutes, right? And then away uh, he went. But by the end of the show, you suddenly had Jack Bauer working with an imam and confessing his sins and repenting. I mean, it was a very interesting culture oh, shift really? after our show. So, yeah. Did I only watched both? the first couple shows or first uh-huh. couple seasons. I, I missed that. Huh. I, I only watched the first one. Did, are you saying that it sort of got woke towards the end or? Well, it, it sort of got, no. let's get big, because after our show, after Sleep mm-hmm. Cell, media started saying, hey, this is actually a pretty, pretty black and white portrayal of things that are happening in the Middle East. And, you know, maybe you might have some, maybe you might have a good Muslim character. And so suddenly you started having near the final seasons, uh, you know, Jack Bauer had like the good Muslim guy, uh, okay. and, you know, mom that was that, you know, that he confessed all of his, you know, I feel bad about all the bad things I've done in life. And, you know, that, that did not necessarily come authentically. That came as a result of a pressure that resulted from our show, which which shook up Hollywood. Oh, a little I bit. see. Shook up Good. Hollywood a little Good. bit enough that they said, "Okay, well, we're kind of done with this Cameron guy. <laughs> you know, he's he's a little bit of hassle." And then, yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I so I like a lot of those shows, but mm-hmm. one thing that a lot of those shows uh, I'm bothered by is the kind of flagrant worship of the deep state, like FBI and CIA are are usually just like always these upstanding people dedicating themselves to the values of America. And it's like, well, I I know that there are some of them, but yeah, but can we read, maybe can we read a a little bit about the history of the CIA and have some cynicism with respect to their dedication to the principles? Um, Yeah. It's also a big competence fantasy. Like all of these people that work in these bureaucracies are so competent and do nothing but work. And, you know, I was actually watching, I know this is, kind of a side note, but I had a very similar feeling when I was watching the Harry Potter movies recently. And, uh, you know, I'm actually thinking about making a video one day about how Harry Potter basically ruined millennials because there's like all these things about it, like very strong us versus them thinking. I mean, if you want to talk about wokeism as like this cult of non-essentialism, the entire like evil side of Harry Potter is constantly, you know, like saying these things that are about like, oh, you know, uh, the biological determinism and stuff like that but um but as far as like in terms of like the the bureaucratic competence like all of the greatest warriors of the wizarding world are all professors and if you just study enough if you just study enough you'll be an epic you know uh can cast any spell do anything be an upstanding police warrior you know and uh that's not my experience that the (laughs) academic that the academics that uh, I go to college and learn from, although they're, I mean, some of them are extremely smart, extremely competent, extremely capable, but uh, in general, I don't see them as, uh, you know, the uh, paragons of success and capability. Well, you, you hit something very yeah. profound there, and it's interesting because I think J.K. Rowling at that time in her life when she's writing, you know, these books, certainly was a traditional, well, I think she still would define herself as a liberal because I think woke and liberal are different, right? But right. She was promoting the standard liberal thing of the the genius of 
of academia. And now look at where she is now in her journey, where it's those academics that have canceled her, right? And right. are her greatest adversaries. Yeah. And for someone like me who was in middle school and elementary, I think late elementary school, middle school, when the Harry Potter books were coming out, it really framed my expectation that when I went to college, I was going to have this experience that would prime everything I was going to learn was going to be like a super power up for my uh, sense of well-being and uh, knowledge accumulation and everything. So I think Harry Potter, and especially since Harry Potter is so incredibly um, popular with women, and especially, um, you know, I, we all remember in like 2016 when everyone was like Gryffindor's army and, or, or Dumbledore's army and stuff like that. So sorry to get off on a Harry Potter tangent. No, actually, I think that's a super insight. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and I actually want to go back to your earlier insight about, about bureaucracy, which is actually one of the things that, that our show, Sleeper Cell, uh, attempted to do, which was to show that it was, you know, the whole war on terror was a bureaucratic nightmare and that the FBI was had a lot of incompetent people. Based, this came out of our interviews with actual FBI agents. And, and there was a Muslim FBI agent who had been sort of sidelined because they thought he, they didn't really trust him because of who he was to actually do his job. And when the show came out, we got calls from, from a, a people in the FBI saying, we want to thank you because you actually show the kind of nonsense I have to deal with with inside the system, whereas it's idolized on shows like 24 and others. Right. Yeah, someone pointed out X-Files, they were pretty corrupt in the X-Files. And that's true, but they were competently corrupt, which I don't think is a good representation of. I worked in the defense <laughs> industry right out of college. And let me tell you, it's the DMV applied to national defense. That's what it is. <laughs> right. right. Like a, a more accurate thing would be either like the men who stare at goats or that Coen Brothers movie. Yes. Uh, I love the men who stare at goats, by the way. That's what I'm And it's also movies. true. Remote viewing yes. is thing. Right. That's right. Yes. right. <laughs> uh, what is that Coen Brothers movie with Brad Pitt? I'm, I can't believe I'm blanking. Uh, where he's like the workout guy. Um, Fight Club? No, 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 no. No, uh, I don't know a Coen Brothers movie. I don't know what. I don't you're know not talking Brad about the Pitt one that, that's the period piece, right? Where it's black no. Black piece, right? No, it's where like there? Brad Pitt is this uh, guy who works at a gym and he's got this Schwinn bike that he's really obsessed with. Um, and uh, I think it's like John Malkovich or something plays a FBI agent who is writing a memoir about his time in the FBI. Maybe I'm the only one here who saw it. I can't burn before, that, burn, burn after, after reading. Someone's saying, burn okay. after I reading. did not see that. Yes. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. That's a Coen well, Brothers movie. Okay. Yeah, it's a similar. Like the FBI is all a bunch of bumbling morons. Just like you know, Coen Brothers do the thing where like everyone's a schmuck. Well, yeah. they, they also yeah. did the thing, like I said, I'm, and I'll remember in a second, or I'll Google it, uh, the, the movie they did that that was sort of a take on uh, it, on old Hollywood, right, uh, in the 1950s. And one of the themes was, it's like infiltrated by communists, which is true, right? One oh, of the right. stars, right. discover one of the LC. major stars that actually goes off on a Russian submarine at the end, right? It's, it's, yeah. It's, it's true. So. Yeah. Um, so, God, who is it? Um, the guy who wrote, uh, God... I shouldn't know my philosophers better, but there are a couple of philosophers in the Frankfurt School that are characters in that movie. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, very briefly, because like it's these uh, the communists uh, capture like Horkheimer, George like the Clooney. like the found, like the big ones, or no, I don't or think Marcuse, Hor the later one. Marcuse, Marcuse is in the movie. Marcuse okay. is in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Hail <laughs> Caesar. Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like you know, they sit down, they they capture George Clooney, and then they give him this uh, this lecture about the dialectic, and it's yeah, so. Yeah, I funny. thought it was one of the funniest. 
Yeah, I, I felt like I was sitting in a writer's room when I was watching that. As these all these like I need to watch know, rich schmucks are telling me about the glories of Marxism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got I got the movie. I got a couple movies to add: Hail Caesar and Burn After Reading. Yeah, check both. It's a, uh, Hail Caesar is a really good movie, and they actually they they capture you know some of the class. Scarlett Johansson plays sort of an old, uh, 50s kind of star, uh, and. They have these incredible sequences that recreate some of the great, uh, you know, like visual moments of fifties movies. And, and you know, they have this great sequence where she's like swimming, doing this synchronized dance sequence with hundreds of dancers in a pool, and it, it's really brilliant. I mean, they, 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 these guys have talent. Oh yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you, since we're talking about movies and we're just kind of meandering on Casual Friday, um, can we talk about Woody Allen? Because I know you're a fan, Jared. Of his yeah, work sure. and and <laughs> so, oh okay I, I'm not a fan creatively. We can talk about his character separately because I have some yeah, more complex views on all that. But but I'm not I'm a talking fan creatively. I was never a fan until the past couple of years. I started watching a few of his his films, and I I have an appreciation for him now that I didn't have before. And I realized that part of why I didn't like his movies before is that I didn't like him as an actor. I didn't like seeing him in the movie. <laughs> but right. if I get past that. If I get past him as an actor, I appreciate some of the writing. And he has a great part. Uh, oh, gosh. It's a movie where he's talking about objectivity as relative and or subjective. Oh, and you're subjectivity. Love and Death. The, the, Love and the, Death. Yeah, the Russian existentialist movie. Yes. Yes. Is that that movie, I, that scene anyway, I think that's where I sort of, I started to appreciate him because I thought that was very well done. Yeah, I mean, my, I mean, I like him to put it simple because he's a Jewish neurotic existentialist, and so am I. <laughs> <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Um, yeah. and, and and you know, some of his movies are god awful. I mean, I don't know anybody who's seen Curse of the Jade Scorpion the whole way through. Um, and you know, some are certainly better than others. But when I watched, I, I got into Woody Allen late high school, early college, and in general, all of the big intellectual developments in my life have all started from movies, you know? Um, and so a mix, you know, The Matrix got me to read Plato and later Baudrillard and, uh, you know, the, the whole genesis or the whole DNA of Wisecrack, if anyone who's listening is familiar with the channel, uh, was about basically about learning through learning through movies or learning through books and stuff like that. And so uh, Woody Allen really hit me at a time where I was kind of, uh, facing these large existential questions. And here was this guy who is culturally similar to me. And, uh, his sense of humor was also bound in that culture that was very familiar to me. And he dealt with these existential themes that, uh, I was also struggling through. So it was just something that really, uh, resonated with me at a very formidable time in my life. And, um, so I'm sure if I rewatched all of my favorites these days, I probably wouldn't like them as much. In general, I actually try to stay away from rewatching films that I'll suspect that I won't like this, you know, time around or at this stage in my life. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically my, my love affair with Woody Allen. I don't, I've never, I, I probably not even, I shouldn't even be part of this. I don't think I can remember any Woody Allen I've ever seen. He just turns me off as a human. And I never want anything to do with any of that's what I, that, that's the actor part. I think I've think ever watched it. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask. So let me ask you, what do you mean by that? And the only reason I ask just is like, I've seen, I've seen like some scenes of his and it, okay. just like his kind of neuroticism. I'm just like, I don't go away. I don't, but I don't want to watch but it's, you. And that's cool. But I find that most people that have that 
uh, opinion towards Woody Allen. Similarly, like you have not seen any of the movies. Yeah, I, us- I haven't. Yeah. But usually it's because like, oh, I remember some tabloid shit in the 90s. You know, that that's what everybody remembers because it was just such a big universal story. Yeah, no, I mean, I know there's tabloid shit about him, um, but that wasn't ever a factor in me not watching. I just right. never – no one ever said to me, let's watch a Woody Allen movie tonight. Like, I was like – I never, it was never like a thing. Yeah. So. I mean, if you don't have that neurotic, self-hating, existentialist vibe to you, I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't see why you would like Woody Allen, you know? <laughs> he, he just, I, I went that, to thank a you for the couple of neurotic, self-hating kids, you know, you know, I, you know and so I, it, for me, it just flashes me back to horrors of high school, right? Uh, but but, but I actually, that leads us to an interesting thing, Jared, that you brought us to, which is that, you know, Woody Allen's an interesting character because he was an icon of this industry. You know, he was someone that was devoutly almost worshipped by this town. I remember when I went to film school, one student literally almost crying. She told us she saw Woody Allen walk by her, you know, when she was in her car that day, right? And like walk by her on the floor. And she was like, she was like shaking. And and I was, I don't know about this, right? But then suddenly he, you know, the tabloid drama, which Hollywood didn't care about initially, right? Because a lot worse stuff than marrying your, you know, your, your non-biological stepdaughter, right? And that the industry has done and people have done, right? Uh, and, and they like Roman Polanski, so, you know. Exactly, they- exactly. And so, but now in the last couple of years, it's become incredibly embarrassing for people. They don't know how to posit where Woody Allen, the icon, stands with Woody Allen, the guy that they want to label as a Me Too predator, right? So they don't know how to handle him anymore. So it's become a very embarrassing thing. So two well, things like two. I'm sorry. Well, that's because I think the the Me Too movement they've they've reduced everything to this idea of uh, believe all women all mm-hmm. the time, or or believe all victims, believe all people who say they're victims all the time, and now they're embarrassed about the way they did not, you know, shun him in the past because this ideology has become. Uh, well, it's become mainstream in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is in the entertainment industry with the Me Too stuff. Now it's like an absolutist thing where you must excommunicate these people that you haven't excommunicated before. And he's one of those cases where I think the a narrative was written where people in my world, in the social justice world, we I just always assumed he was guilty. And I never really looked at the details. I just assumed it. Like I assumed a lot of things. And... Now, when I look at it, I think it's one of those things where there's probably, there's no, we don't, we, we like to be able to look at things and say, this is the good guy. This is the bad guy. But I've read and watched enough now where I think he's a, probably a super creepy dude. I think marrying his, uh, what his girlfriend's young daughter is super creepy, but I also don't believe the, that he abused his his infant daughter. I just, I don't believe that. And I also believe Mia Farrow has some personality disorder issue mm-hmm. behaviors. Like she's got some serious issues and all of those things can be true, but we prefer to look at it and say, Oh, Mia Farrow's the good guy. He's the bad guy, or he's the good guy. She's the bad guy. There's always this sort of one is good. One is I bad. I hate them like, all. Oh, I I, I, after 20 years of Hollywood, yeah, I hate them all. I think people, <laughs> pretty standard. I'm with Cameron on that one. People are really messy and yeah. you've got two messy people together. You're gonna have a messy story, and it's and it's one of those things where, yeah, now uh, there's a lot of pressure too. Didn't his book get canceled? Didn't his book get pulled recently? Yeah, yeah, his book got canceled. You can yeah. still get it. I mean, I, I have it, but yeah, it's okay. definitely a little hard to find. 
So there's actually two things I want to say to what Cameron said. Uh, one is, um, look, like it, everything that you said is completely valid, and I'm really not defending Woody Allen here, but I really just, for the sake of accuracy, want to correct you on something. And this is something that people in the 90s and since do all the time, because that the narrative is, is that he married somebody he was like legally responsible for. And that's not true because Mer Mia Farrow and a composer named Andre Previn, mm -hmm. they adopted Sun Yi. Yeah. And so it wasn't really his adopted daughter. Yeah. And, um, and I don't think I said I, that. I think, I think stepdaughter in the sense of he was his girlfriend's daughter. Okay. Yes, you're correct. I did understand the legal difference, but you're right to clarify for all of us. Thank okay. you. Okay. And again, you can still think that that's horrible. You can still think that that's creepy. You can still think that that's inexcusable, but just for the sake of like, you know, because I do think yeah. that if you're legally responsible for mm -hmm. somebody and then you marry mm -hmm. them, then it seems a lot more like grooming mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. I think what is like uh, really the situation. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing I would, I just wanted to say is like, I actually disagree. I think that like Hollywood mm -hmm. is, done with Woody Allen. I don't think that really? there's okay. like a like a real question as to what do we do with this guy? Like, I mean, I, I don't think his movies really get funding anymore because everyone's so afraid of him. Um, I don't think his movies really play anymore. I think that he gets like rejected from uh, festivals and stuff. So, I, I mean, I think he's pretty much done. Now, granted, a lot of his fans are old enough to, mm -hmm. you know, not really care about what's happening culturally. But, um, I mean, sadly, I think it's kind of, he'll never have like another Oscar nominated movie, no matter how good his movies are. Well, then the so bigger question is, question, is Polanski though? done? I don't know that Polanski's done. No, he's Polanski's done a lot not. worse. <laughs> I don't know that no, Polanski's, Polanski's done. not done. Yeah. So this is a question that I've got for you guys because you guys are in the creative content producing world. To what extent do we watch content from people that are horrible, like that turn out to be horrible individuals? Bill Cosby's the thing that's coming to mind right now. Like, mm -hmm. there's, I, you know, I liked the Cosby Show. And I would still watch the Cosby show because if, I mean, if I watched old 80s shows, right, there's nothing wrong with the Cosby show. But it does kind of feel weird knowing who he is now, right? It, do, well, do we need to separate I, those things or, like, should opinion. one inform the other? So I actually, I think it's just a personal choice and it it's not a one shoe fits all thing. I think it's just... We, we tend to, again, we make it these big things. Oh, oh, this should be canceled. This should be taken down. I definitely don't believe that's true. I know they scrubbed an episode of The Simpsons that has Michael Jackson in it. Why? Right. You right. should still be able to watch that episode of The Simpsons with Michael Jackson. That's that's stupid. And and that you, you veer into dangerous territory then, I think, when you start canceling art. And you start, I'm not talking about uh, whether it should be canceled, oh, no. but whether people should do it. Is I'm, like, I'm, would you yeah, watch I'm it? Answering, I'm answering your question in totality, though, because there are people oh, watching okay. our show right now who want to know where we stand on this. I don't believe art should be canceled. I, but right. on a personal choice, like this is my answer, is that uh, it's a personal decision. And so there are certain people that I can still enjoy, even though, um, like, for example, I just said, I think Woody Allen's probably creepy. I would never want to date him. But I do have an appreciation for his movies now that it took me a while to grow and I can watch them and I don't feel any kind of weird guilt for, enjo for enjoying one. And on the other hand, I, I can't really look at Tom Cruise without being grossed out. I think he's crazy. I've seen enough of him uh, jumping on cash, you know, all the Scientology stuff that he kind of, I don't know, skeeves me out and I can't forget that he's Tom Cruise. And so I just don't watch his movies because he, that's just me. But I'm not like out there like, get rid of Tom Cruise movies. It's Scientologists. Nobody else should be able to watch them or enjoy them. 
Because <laughs> I think he's, you know, I don't know. That's my answer. I just, I just very simply separate art from artists because they're all scum. And you just, you can't, you can't. I mean, if you thought of Cam, we'll do anything then. Yeah. I, I mostly agree with Cameron. However, I would draw the distinction of like, if my patronizing of their art is allowing them to continue abusing people, then that's where I draw the line. Um, so obviously with Bill Cosby, if I like the Cosby show, he's already so rich, no one's taking away his money. It's not like me watching is going to enable him to abuse more women. But if it was somebody like, let's say, a YouTuber who lives off their YouTube revenue and is, you know, doing horrible things like date raping women, then, ob then I would not feel comfortable enjoying or, um, you know, uh, patronizing their content uh, if it was enabling them to keep doing these things. Absolutely. All right, so I've got a personal story. I want to share a personal story yeah, that okay. shows that I'm actually probably closer to Jared in some ways on this because I actually was in a room once with Roman Polanski. So, oh, wow. So about <laughs> 10 years, it was like 10, maybe something like that. About 10 years ago, I went to the Moroccan, you know, Marrakesh Film Festival, uh, which was very interesting. I've never been to Morocco. I love Morocco. And I went, and at the, that year, uh, Polanski was one of the uh, the judges of the of the festival, right? Uh, and I was there, I was in Marrakesh, and I was there with a friend of mine, uh, and we were going through the party circuit and, and you know, hanging out and, and trying to make connections at these, at the, you know, there were a lot of interesting people there. And we end up in this party and, you know, in, in, the, in, in this villa somewhere. And suddenly I see a huge crowd like like descending on the circle of the room because Roman Polanski had entered, right? And he suddenly everyone's like, oh my God, Mr. Polanski is here. And they're all kissing his ass. And my friend who I was with said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I got to go meet him. I got to go talk to him. And I said, you know, I'm actually a huge fan of Rosemary's Baby. I think it's one of the great movies, right? Uh, even though it's got these people, Polanski made it and you've got Mia Farrow who's a little crazy, right? Uh, and you've got this, um, but I think it's a superb movie. Uh, even though, you know, I have my own opinions about the occult nature behind it uh, and all that, but it's a great movie. And I was like, uh, you know what? I don't think I'm going to go speak to Mr. Polanski because, you know, this guy like raped a little 12-year-old girl. You know, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think this is for me. I, and everyone was descending on him like he was the star of the world. And I just walked out. I said, I said to my friend, you go talk to him. I'm not interested. And it was this weird moment where I literally felt like this moral thing. I was like, I don't want to be around this guy. This is really skeeving me out in this situation, even though I'm a fan of the work. And she later said this. She went up to Polanski and she said, I made a mistake. She speaks multiple languages. And uh, she said, I should have spoken to him in French. I went up. Everyone was talking to him in French. It's Morocco. French is a common language there. And she said, I made, a, made the mistake of coming up, introducing myself in English. The moment he heard someone speak in English, he turned and walked out of the room in terror because he thought it might have been a trap. Americans might be, it might have been a honey trap to get him back to America. Right. That's how scared he was. The moment someone spoke English, he left. He left the party. Right. Because uh, that's how you know, he lives a life in fear and deservedly so. so. Yeah. Do, so do you think that that uh, like hall pass that he has among, I guess what you're saying, like Hollywood people, where do you think that comes from? And do you think it comes from just sympathy for him because of his Holocaust experience and because of what happened to his wife? I have an opinion that's going to that's going to weird out Carter. OK. Might not weird out Carrie. Well, you know, as someone who has certainly experienced some of the more nefarious elements of this town, which people would have difficulty believing, which have occult elements to it, right? Uh, you know, I he has long been rumored to be involved with some of the more shady, shadowy secret society elements of our industry, uh, and that Rosemary's Baby was an element of that. You know, of the satanic side of our industry, and whether one believes that a Satan is real. There are people in this industry that are into weirdo rituals and stuff that's like, 
hey, you know, Illuminati stuff. You actually, you're doing that even if it's all crazy. And so I always think he's been part of a very dark inner circle of this town. And that's why he's protected. I think Woody Allen was just like you said. He's just this artist who's a little weird. And uh, I don't know that he was ever involved in sort of the, this, the hidden secret society element of this town. And that's my opinion. And it's a little strange. And some of your audience are like, what the hell is he talking I about? I don't think it's strange. I tend to agree. I think, <laughs> look, look, I just, I was thinking about this the other day, or I can't remember what video I was watching that made me think about it, but it was sort of like, hey, you may not believe Satan is real, but other people do. Just like you may not believe God is real, but other people do. <laughs> and yeah, there, is a yeah. Uh, I've experienced my own things, which I don't necessarily want to talk about in public. And I know certain yeah. things I don't necessarily want to talk about in public. But there are certainly people who believe this kind of crazy stuff. And I personally believe Mr. Polanski was always part of it. There's actually a fascinating book, which I'll show right here, for your book club. Oh. Did I mention this one? Did I mention this before? Oh, oh. interesting. This is a yes. superb book, and it's, a, it's, it's by Little Brown, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and Secret of the 60s. Tom O'Neill is a very – he's not a weirdo conspiracy theorist guy. He is a former, he's a journalist, and he formerly used to remember Premiere Magazine that used to be around that, I mean, he was, yeah. used to be like a fluff entertainment reporter. And so 20 years ago, he started doing a fluff piece for Premiere Magazine about looking into how the impact of Charles Manson and the murders and Sharon Tate had on Hollywood. And in the process, this whole book is about how he accidentally bumbles onto certain bits of evidence that were suppressed in the Charles Manson trial that he found in evidence boxes that were locked up by the LAPD. He's like, why wasn't this? Why wasn't this revealed? And in, in asking those questions, he starts stumbling into a conspiracy that makes him conclude after several years of going into this and having a lot of very extreme experiences with some of the original people. He talked to the original prosecutors like, man, you don't want to be looking at that. You want to stop this right now. And the original police officers like, you don't want to be looking into this. He concluded that based on the actual documentable evidence that Manson was involved in, in, you know, he's connected to the CIA. He's one of his prison doctors when he was in San Francisco was one of the people that was later in the MK Ultra documents that were released by the CIA and that he was involved, that the entire, you know, the farm was an MK Ultra experiment that went out of control and then the CIA shut it down uh, when, it, when, he, when they were off killing people. And so whether one believes that thesis or not, it's this guy is a credible person and Little Brown published it because it's, he had, he presents the evidence and his life gets destroyed when he starts getting too close to that. But what the book reveals is the deeper he goes in Hollywood and starts asking people the questions and matching, they're like, man, you don't want to be looking into this. This isn't what you think it is. And this is a lot more dangerous than you think it is. You need to just let the official narrative stand. So it's a fascinating thing that there's layers to, to, to this industry that this guy bumbled onto. He's not like a conspiracy guy. He's, He's like, I'm, I'm just a fly. I just wanted to make a dumb movie premiere magazine profile. And I find this stuff. Well, let me, let me respond. Okay, please. I'm not freaked out by that. Like, I, I'm an atheist, but I'm used to people believing stuff that I think is weird. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people in the world that believe stuff that I think is kind of weird. And the good ones believe in something positive. <laughs> I may still think it's a little bit weird, but at least they're trying to do good in the world. I also know there's evil people. It's not a stretch to believe they believe in the dark side of all of that stuff and are doing things like that's totally not a stretch to me. Um, and not to sound like a tinfoil hat kind of guy, but the more I read about and we've we've read what was the book that we read uh, about the CIA in the Middle East, Carrie? Um, oh, by uh, the, Max Blumenthal, the management of savagery. Max Blumenthal, yeah, management of savagery. The more, yeah, the more I read about, and actually, and you can also read about uh, the toppling of. Um, 
the government in Iran. Like the more you read about the history of the CIA, the more you realize actually they've been up to conspiracy level like shit for ever, forever. And at the time, people are called crazy Alex Jones types. I mean, not Alex Jones, but whatever the whatever the thing is at the time, they're treated like they're crazy for talking about it. And then 20, 30, 40 years, <laughs> right. And then 20, 30 years later, people are like, oh, yeah, we, yeah, they did that. But they're not doing it now because yeah. why? I don't know. So I, I'm actually not that surprised. We know that the CIA has relationships with the press. We know that they have relationships with Hollywood. Um, and I actually think that's probably one of the reasons why um, you see such positive portrayals in the CIA in movies all the time um, because there's like, hey, we'll give you access and give you some stuff if you, you know, portray us in a good light. We know that there's a relationship there. That's not a conspiracy theory. I think that's kind of known. Um, yeah, I, I so, know for a fact that that is true. <laughs> and so yeah. personal experience. Uh, but uh, the last thing I'll say about that book is the reason I brought it all up is that the book also deals with Polanski. Polanski's, mm. uh, you know, it actually deals. He, again, he goes, he talks to original agents, like old retired FBI and CIA guys who are like, wow, you you found this. I'm good for you. But it's like Polanski was someone that the that the CIA was watching when he arrived from Eastern Europe because they thought he was connected to communists and whatever. So from the very end, Polanski was involved in very shady stuff in very strange parts of this industry that the moment you get close to them, people are like, we're not talking about this anymore. And he's still around. And that's a reason why he won't be canceled because he's still part of that. Okay. So you're mm -hmm. saying that because of that, he basically has like some sort of leverage over kind of like the tastemakers in Hollywood that decide mm -hmm. who's canceled and who's not. That is, that is my opinion. Yeah. I, okay. mean, I, I you know, I, I think Woody Allen was just the guy that you imagine him to be. He's like, you know, this, this interesting filmmaker, yeah. uh, you know, and I just don't think he was ever into that, those elements. And so as a result, he has no protection. Can I play devil's advocate? What if it's just Hollywood worships power and success and they really don't give a crap about what you do to people on the side? Well, right, well no, then because, if you get caught too much and they have to, you know, sorry, no, go ahead, Jared. Well, Weinstein is basically the second thing you're about to say. Mm -hmm. Right. If they, if they get it, if they, if they, if it goes too far and like they can't protect it anymore, like they, if it, if the person gets in so much trouble that they start to look bad, then they have to distance themselves. But, you know, or, as long or, as they or can, the old Weinstein is a fall guy to hide even more nefarious people. Because yes. once, right. yeah, that's it's sleight of hand. Get the camera on this guy who's, you know, egregiously been out there for the time, 20 years that I've been here, we all knew about this guy, right? And then other stuff that I learned about over time, I was like, wait, you're telling me that guy's a pedophile and he has private parties with kids? That, and they're like, they're like yeah, you can't talk about that. I was like, okay, all right. Well, that camera ain't on that guy, right? <laughs> and so. Right. And this isn't surprising because these are the people who are the best in the world at spinning narratives. That's what they do for a living. This is so. The, the idea that they might try and spin a narrative in real life, not just on the screen, shouldn't be that shocking. Yeah. But we do. This stuff we fascinates do. me. So, I want to read that book. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give you the best books. I give you the best books. I, you and do. You still, have to, you still have to read my wonderful book, uh, you know, the astrological book that Carter's never going to read. Yeah, but we did that do the fourth astrology You probably won't. <laughs> Uh, Richard Petz, let me just read this real quick. Richard Petz, thank you for the super chat. I felt like we were, just, we were just hanging out, having a fun conversation with friends. I forgot yeah. we were live. Richard Petz says, hi, Carter. Great Independence Day podcast. Congrats to Carrie for tying the knot. Just finished reading the Anarchist Handbook. Good read. Cheers, Richard. Anarchist Handbook is our next book for book club. So after Catch 22, if you want to get a jumpstart on the next book, 
we're reading, what's his name? Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook. Yeah, and it's a collection of essays. He didn't actually, I think he like compiled it and wrote some parts, but it's a collection of like some of the, is, is there a classical anarchist <laughs> canon? It's, that's what it is. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I, I saw something in the chat just fly by, which actually references what we were just talking about. Someone wrote, uh, everyone knows the ship Brian Singer gets up to. They've known for years. And I was going to bring up Brian Singer. But, but that's another example. Brian Singer is the front man for something. That's why he had to be removed. Like, he doesn't have a career anymore. He's vanished, right? Essentially, he may even physically vanished, right? I don't hear about him. Because there's other people. Singer was accused of, we all knew, I mean, we all knew that he had parties with, with, with young men. And now people, some people claim that he had parties with young boys. The, the thing is, the problem is that brought attention to the people who really are having parties with young underage boys. And Singer was connected to those people. So suddenly, boom, he's gone. You don't hear about him anymore. Because that's going to make people start looking the wrong way. So you need a fall so, guy. Whenever they get too close, someone's got to be the mm -hmm, fall guy, and they yeah. just pick on the person they want. And, mm -hmm, yeah. yeah. Whoever's stupid enough to to be public about it. You know, Singer was pretty public about his lifestyle, as was Weinstein. So here's what's interesting about mm -hmm. Brian Singer. Op the documentary, the, An Open Secret, touched mm -hmm. on him. Mm -hmm. And then there was an expose. I can't remember what uh, paper it was in. I want to say it was something... Uh, it it wasn't a national paper. It was it was some kind of local local paper. But they did sort of an expose on him, and they covered all of these these rumors and allegations and and facts, some facts about about his behavior. But it never it never became big news like Weinstein. It never became it never reached that level, and I couldn't understand why. And I'm thinking, of course, if they're going to make a big story out of Weinstein. Um, which I think they should have. I think he's, I think he's a monster. Uh, but this other story never, it's almost like it was purposefully avoided. So that's interesting that you're saying, you know, taken out of the spotlight because he was drawing attention. But Can I ask you guys something uh, about yeah. this? It, it, it's in, kind of relative to Weinstein. I remember uh, back when I was hosting one of the podcasts I used to do, we were talking about, this was about like maybe two years ago, there was uh, something in the news where Toy Story 2 was re-released on Disney+, Plus, and in the original cut, there was like a casting couch joke at the end, where uh, basically like, I think one of the characters sees a bunch of Barbie dolls, and like he goes up to him and says, hey girls, want to part in a movie? You know, and like the suggestion is, you know, they'll do I, I've seen that scene that you're talking about. So yeah. yes. And the suggestion is that they'll do sexual favors to get into the movie. And I remember, so my argument when I brought this up on the podcast was uh, that I didn't like them taking it out of the movie because I think it erases the complicity of all of Hollywood in this because, and then people, you know, I was pretty much shouted down from that opinion and the, the overarching um, statement was, and I'm curious if you guys agree with this statement, is it wasn't okay back then and it's not okay now. Do you guys ag agree with that as just a true statement? Because I don't no. believe, I don't believe it was not okay back then. And I think that the Toy Story 2 scene is evidence of that because it was just yes. something that happened and we all laughed about it and no one made a fuss because it was okay. You know what it reminds me of, Jared, to answer your question? It reminds me of the Washington Post recently going back and secretly editing headlines from 15 months ago. Right. Because what they're doing is covering their complicity in something. 
Correct. That's different. And and they want to recast that. They want to recast something that is attempting to hide their their own complicity. They want to recast that as this isn't acceptable and we're, we're getting rid of it to correct the record or to make a better, uh, a better historical record. No, you're not. You're trying to cover up your guilt. You have shame about this, or maybe you don't have shame or guilt. You just don't. Now the, no, now the cultural attitude has shifted and you're embarrassed. Yeah. But that, it's, it's the same thing. It's covering it up. It was in the movie. Leave it in there so we can see it. Well, yeah. it's also commentary about how open this was. The reality is, the casting couch slash prostitution culture of Hollywood goes back to the silent films. I mean, it was immediately the angle people used, you know, both predators and people that said, okay, this is my angle in, I'll sleep with you, right? I mean, this this is, and that, I mean, we had, I remember reading about a lawsuit where one of the silent film actresses uh, in the 1920s sued a producer for sexual harassment and won, right? And she was one of the few that was like, I'm not gonna do this, right? And she had reached enough of a fame in the silent film world that the public supported her. This is like 1922. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think it's uh, rewriting history. Just you're basically just scrubbing evidence. That's all. You're yeah. Doing, right. There's there's scrubbing evidence. Like you knew about it. You thought it was funny. That's a fact. You like. You're just well, scrubbing it's, evidence. It's, it's all the it's right. all the YouTube videos we have of the great of all the people making jokes at the Oscars about Harvey Weinstein, right? Right. About this. Yeah. And him and the camera pants of Weinstein loving and laughing it because he loves the fact that he's yeah. the story that all these beautiful women want to have sex with him because he's powerful, right? All right. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I mentioned to Carrie last time I was on the show that I was a fan of the philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and Žižek talks about. Um, how in order to really situate yourself as a member of a community, you not only have to follow a certain set of rules, but there are also these meta rules, these unspoken ways of how that the, the prescribed correct way to break the rules. And mm -hmm. I think that um, the casting couch and uh, that industry of prostitution was a meta rule of men in Hollywood, mm -hmm. you know, like it wasn't, you know, like, yeah, the official rule was like no workplace harassment, you know, whatever, whatever. But the, the meta rule or the implicit rule that it allowed you to gesture that you were a part of this community was to break that rule by being really creepy with women. And like, because you could get away with it because you were powerful you now, you were it, at yeah. a higher level. Right. So like, it's not just that. I just think that uh, what Me Too is reacting against is actually a culture that's way more powerful and way more all-consuming and convincing than simply a bunch of opportunistic, creepy dudes. Yes. And it's still true today. Yes. A, a friend of mine is a big producer, and I want to mention his name, was telling me about somebody who he knew. He's like, yeah, I just, not. somebody he knew who was a producer on a major film that is that is out or maybe outish around now. And he's like, yeah, I mean, my this guy told me. That you know, he banged the actress, and that's how she got the role. This is going on right now. Me too has made Here's, a difference. Can I can difference. I jump in here? I, th there's something I'd like to say that I yeah. th this a lot of times when we talk about these creepy guys who've been outed in Hollywood and other places, mm -hmm. and I'm happy I'm happy that they've been outed and we're talking about it. But we culturally, we also are sort of pretending that women don't have agency to turn these offers down. And, and there's a part of that conversation that's missing there. Like in the Harvey Weinstein story, for example, one of the women that he made this move on, that he tried the casting couch thing on, was uh, the actress from 12 Years a Slave, uh, Lupita uh, Nyong'o. Nyong yeah. 
she said F off, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, but she told him, she turned him down. She, it, her story was different than the other women's stories because she didn't go along with it. And he said, well, you'll never work in this town. And, and she basically was like, okay, I guess I won't, like, I'll see. And she managed to be successful without him, but she turned him down. And the thing is that I, I hate this idea that just because someone, yes, is in a position of power and yes, they're abusing that. And yes, they're being skeezy and gross that you have no choice but to go along with it. Like, no, you could also sacrifice things you want. You could also say, hey, guess what? Being a famous actress isn't worth, worth me sleeping with you. I'm not doing it. And, and some women, very few, I guess, in that position have chosen that path. But I think that's also something that sort of, that's lost there is I get, I get, I don't know, I get sort of well, there, 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 there is free will here. There is free yeah. will. And like you, you participate know. in the grossness. You participate in it. It's like the girls mm -hmm. in Louis C.K.'s room who watched him jerk mm -hmm. off. And then and then they, and then it's it, when they talk about, they recast it. It's recast later as like just about a, a gross predator and these helpless victims. You could have left the room. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, he was a powerful comedian. Yeah. yeah, but he's a powerful comedian, and you yeah. want you were willing to make that Faustian deal, like you were willing to make that bargain. So don't say you weren't. I'm not saying what he did is right at all. It's gross. But you then you were like, okay, okay, gross handshake. Let's do it. Like you could leave. That's your price as a <laughs> prostitute. That's the price yeah. that you. Yes. Are. I, one Fame. one actress once admitted to me privately that she had no problem whatsoever sleeping with men for roles. It's not something she would ever say publicly. But that, that yeah. to her, that's business. To her, that's business. You know, I like sex. I don't really have a problem with it. And uh, and I know that's the that's the exchange. This was during the height of Me Too. I was like, okay, I guess, you know, okay. But, but and I will add one more thing to that. Uh, I personally know uh, of a female showrunner that has Me Too'd male actors. And some have gone along with it. Yeah. I mean, oh, so. Yeah, well, that. this is, yeah, I personally know of, uh, of <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so I I, I'm going to, I'm usually the pessimist and the cynic. So I'm going to say something that I think is positive out of this whole thing that oh, I'm wow. happy about. Uh, the reason that people can get away with this is because uh, they are gatekeepers for distribution of content and production of content. And as the internet and more content comes along, yeah, we get a lot of crappy women doing makeup videos and, and garbage online. But the price to produce content is falling precipitously. The distribution is becoming easier. And I think the the gatekeeper role of a lot of those people is going to start going away. And um, that's something that I actually think is a positive change. Do you guys think that's I, gonna go away or do you disagree? You think it's gonna just switch to like, you gotta sleep with Zuckerberg? <laughs> well, I mean, we all kind of have to sleep with Zuckerberg, right? You know, <laughs> um, it's non-consensual. It's non-consensual. Yeah, yeah. I make that. I make that gross handshake every time I log into Facebook. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, I, I I hope that the gatekeeper thing goes away, and it it seems like it obviously has been with uh, you know the you know, like movies and even television shows for these days are no longer the monolithic cultural deciders that they used to be. Like now people like us can just talk on YouTube and, you know, generate bigger audiences than whatever new David Spade show is out or whatever. But um, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention to Carrie's point about these uh, social things that we just pretend aren't true. I think another thing that has not been talked about at all is just the male psychosocial dynamic of 
moving to Hollywood to work in entertainment. I mean, I'm pulling this number out of my ass completely, but I would venture a guess that like 30% of men enter the entertainment industry for the purpose of generating enough power to where they could actually, they could eventually, you know, convince a woman that is like out of their league to sleep with them. That 30%? is how it's higher than that, buddy. It's way okay. higher than that. Yeah. Wow. In my experience, it's way <laughs> higher than that. But like, yeah, there, there, there are just like, you know, millions of men who never got laid in high school who are mm -hmm. so resentful and so full of rage. And they see Hollywood as this place where, you know, you can, you can uh, elevate yourself above your looks. I and mean, of course you could do that as a lawyer and get rich or whatever, but Hollywood in particular has well, there's glamour. that. There's, there's glamour, glamour to Hollywood. There's glamour and there is that implicit culture that everybody has always known about, but only recently talked about that if you have power in Hollywood, hot actresses will sleep with you. Only now has that been challenged, but nobody says that like, because the narrative is that it's just isolated, creepy, bad guys who are doing this. Not that there's a greater culture and that this is really complicated. Well, and there's something I, I don't want to impugn all guys who like supermodels, but there's something about the psychology of a guy who values glamour and looks as the primary um, uh, feature of a woman to to be with. Like that's not every every guy likes good looks, but I think there's something about those resentful guys that when you are just objectifying someone, you're then you're just going after hotness and glamour uh, rather than someone you actually can connect with and enjoy and like connecting with people on in on a real level is one of the things that's actually difficult in Hollywood because people are it's just a it's the fakest culture I've ever been in oh um, right I mean these Hollywood. guys these guys aren't looking for connection they're just looking for like you know hookup culture on steroids except only with supermodels well, well right well, so that's what I mean there's something about feed. that psychology she knows my that's... Twitter feed so I may not be the right person to jump into this part of the conversation well, <laughs> well but you're but you're not hooking up you're just appreciating them and I appreciate, I appreciate your Twitter feed as well it's fine women. yeah there's I a difference have, between I actually have a line that I don't try to cross so yeah there's a difference between my, my preacher gave a sermon on this recently I thought it was really interesting it was about the difference between appetite and adoration and where you're viewing a person as an object versus being a subject and appreciating beauty versus wanting to uh, feed yourself and consume someone. It was really interesting. And your, your um, is very wise. That's, I mean, that's my fault. People are like, you're a devout Muslim. You're posting pictures of pretty women on Twitter. I was, yes, because I, uh, for me as a Sufi, women are the, the manifestation of the divine archetype of beauty, like mm -hmm. the platonic idea of beauty. And so I appreciate that. But it like, but people are like, man, you can't be doing that. You're hollow. I was like, yeah, I can't. And well, I probably shouldn't be doing a lot of things in Hollywood, but I will say this, I have a very strict don't shit where you eat policy, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, aside from the fact that it would destroy my career, it's morally wrong. So I was like, you know, I would never, because I'd been in positions of power as a producer, as a, you know, a, a, on a television show, but it's like, you have to create this, this barrier where you actually can't cross that barrier with coworkers, which is what these people are, because you have, I mean, it's, it's wrong and it will destroy your life because I don't have the Roman Polanski evil occult protection right and so this town we wait this town is waiting for a reason to get rid of me right? to get rid and of you the fastest way for them to do it so but like, no nah, i don't think so i hey, hey. oh sorry go ahead uh just real quick thomas st thomas hello thomas he says glamour and looks is the only reason i watch your show carter <laughs> see you in austin thanks for being creepy thomas i love you man <laughs> so uh 
Carrie, can you repeat, sorry, the two terms that your pastor said? It was, sorry, what were the two? Uh, the difference between appetite and adoration. Okay, appetite and adoration. I think we can all agree here that uh, when it comes to developing a intimate relationship with a potential partner, we all want adoration rather than appetite. But, you know, a lot of what you know, you guys and myself included criticize about like, you know, what uh, this kind of move towards social justice has done to the world of entertainment is that we're now no longer allowed to like use the lens of appetite. And and that's something I disagree with because I think that, and, and your pastor, I guess my question is, did your pastor want to differentiate between what is good and what is bad with that discrepancy? Or was he just saying these are two ways to think about women and they're like kind of value neutral? I think he was talking about the difference between, well, it was a sermon and, and it was specifically in a Christian context. It was a sermon. So it was about the difference between love and lust and, and really just how in your relationships, like treating people as objects versus subjects and, right. you know, uh, and sex, you know, talking about sex as a uh, culturally, I think he's right that we've gotten to a place where we, a lot of times in our culture, we view sex as, two people coming together as objects rather than the other person being a subject, you know, that sort of the idea that you can separate sex and, and love. And we have, we have separated, I think, sex mm -hmm. and love to a large degree. Um, anyway, it was a sermon about that. I guess okay, Nick, I'm going to say something yeah. controversial now I, I, a little what? bit, and maybe Cameron will like it though. My character. Okay, here we go. <laughs> no, I don't think there's it. So but, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with admiring beauty. I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with lust. Like, I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything wrong with separating love from sex. I think there's something wrong with forgetting that there is something more meaningful than all of those things. And that that's what should be the primary value. Like, you'll be happier in your life if you seek someone that you can actually love and build a real bond with. It, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to go to the extreme and say, Cameron can't post pictures of hot women. because. We all, all guys like looking at pictures of hot women. And women Everyone do loves too. Cameron's I mean, women Twitter appreciate feed. female beauty. Sure. Right. And it's, and it's fine to look at a woman and say, oh, I feel lust for this woman. That's fine. The question then is like, what do you do with that? And what you do with that, if you, if you turn that into, and you know, and I'm not a guy who's against one night stands. If you want to do that sometimes, you know, I know that's not the Christian thing, but like, I'm fine with that too. <laughs> but uh, that's not a substitute. That's not a substitute for a loving, long-term, committed relationship. It's just not. And I think we've we've substituted Tinder for marriage. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that completely. The reason I brought this up is, uh, and I was talking more about just like the way that media portrays women. Um, so the reason I brought this up uh, is because I've been watching the show Married with Children lately. You guys oh watch that? My it's so impossible good. to make that show today. Impossible. impossible. And it's crazy that it was network. <laughs> it was network television. But anyway, like one of the things you notice watching that show, and I recommend that you watch it because it feels edgy. And this was 80s network television. It'll blow your <laughs> mind. But um, this was during an era where, well, first of all, the show is all about sex. And they're mm -hmm. uh, like the casting directors just shamelessly just. Mm -hmm casted the hottest models and like you know throughout the entire show there's always plot points about just like there is a woman who is there simply to be an object of lust and it like you know is is you know in service of the comedy that like you know al bundy's life sucks so much because you know here's this amazing potential life with 
banging supermodels, and then there's his shitty domestic life as a shoe salesman. And um, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, yes, you could argue that these models and these women were not given, like, you know, proper, you know, uh, subjectivity that a fully formed woman would have, but it's just in service of comedy and asking the audience to relate to something that I think is very understandable Human. and very easy to believe about men is that they like hot women. Human. Right. They're, yeah. They're and, and, and you know what? I, Bundy is he can never have those girls, right? Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. that's the audience. The audience can't have those girls either. That's, what that's right. Them. That's right. I, but you just don't see that anymore. Like everything has to be like body diversity and stuff like that. It's not just like, Oh my God, Hollywood, the oh, hottest Victoria's in Secret the world. Broke my heart. Victoria's Secret broke my heart. They yeah. went body positivity. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Okay. Are they putting like Megan Rap Rapinoe, or whatever her name is, is going to be one of the angels now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. they've canceled. <laughs> like uh, they've canceled the show and all, whatever. Uh, you know, I, 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 I just. Wait. I just want to hit two real quick super chats. G-Man. Thank you, G-Man. Gives us five bucks. He says, this is why I never pay for dinner. I don't want to be accused of using my wealth for sexual favor. Well, are you expecting sex with all your dinner partners, G-Man? Like what? Uh, super. Uh, can't dinner just be dinner? Super Iron Bob. Also Every dude is like, bucks. real quiet right now. <laughs> no, because look, Carrie. Hey, wait, I, look, when you're a guy, like you're, you're dating because you want sex. Yeah. So... Is why the hell would I dinner? like Did if it's just... not even on the option? I'm not taking you to dinner. I mean, that's like you know, a, wine yeah. and dine. I mean, come on. I go to yeah. dinner all the time with. I don't want to be friends. This is the great the god is chasm <laughs> <laughs> of understanding between the bad and the fool. <laughs> okay, uh, super iron bomb. Although I agree with not paying for dinner. By the way, it's a good move. So go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> we have dinner all the time. We've had dinner before. Look, this is like this actually reminds me of remember that episode Carter where we were talking about something and I just didn't get. Oh, we were talking about uh, Netflix and I said yeah. Cause then I just Netflix and chill and you were like, what? And I said, well, I next Netflix and <laughs> yeah. chill by myself all the time. And you were like, that's not what that means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you are, you are, you are so little old lady from another era. <laughs> I thought I just said watch Netflix. Okay. Super Iron Bob says the A20 rule will always apply. There will always be a gatekeeper who will take advantage of their role. I, I don't disagree that there will be some kind of gatekeeping, but I do disagree that it will be the way that it, it like, even this show is an example. We have, I mean, we're not huge. We've got a little bit under 40,000 subscribers. There's no way in hell that I could have showed up in Hollywood and said, I want to talk about some shit. Can you get me 40,000 people to watch? Like, never in a, in a million years, but we can put it on YouTube and some people say, oh, this is interesting enough and Carrie can talk and people listen and like, maybe we could have gotten Carrie 40,000 people in Hollywood, I don't know, but I certainly couldn't have. And like, so I think there's, it's provable that there's been democratization of access. So that's, that's, that's fair, but I actually want to go back to that point because you made it a bit earlier in our conversation, which yeah. I am actually of the view that yes, there has been a democratization of content, which is empowering new voices, but there will always remain the pinnacle of this industry, which is, you know, people aren't going to be able to crowdfund Mission Impossible 15, right? right. It's not going to happen. And so I and disagree. They will be able to. Really? All right. Well, I look forward Absolutely. to seeing that. Yeah. Okay. Because okay. Um, look, the tech world, things will get so cheap. Yeah. It, yes, you will be able to. All right. Well, a dude, I, we'll in 30 years, a high school dude will be able to do that on his home computer by himself. 
I, I I remain of the view that <laughs> there will be. Okay, you're kidding. Okay, okay, you're good poker face. Uh, I remain of the view that there's going to be. There will always be a an Olympus, which is Hollywood, right? I actually don't see any other competing industry. I don't think China, Russia, or Bollywood is ever going to replace what we've created in this industry. We've got a mass conglomeration of expertise here that isn't going anywhere. Uh, incredible crews, incredibly trained craftsmen. They're all here, and they are very expensive. And to make that kind of stuff will always be the top of the mountain and there and there are people that want to be at the top of that mountain they don't want to just be making their tiktok videos they and if they get a breakthrough tiktok the first thing they do is they sign with an agent at caa and they try to get a real tv show right nobody wants to stay at that level and yeah because, i, I you know, agree with that have power abuse I, I agree with that. However, you're starting to see Netflix, Amazon, Hulu. You're starting to see a lot of the smaller production companies get funding from sources that have distribution. And I think the more democratized distribution is, the more you can hire. Like you can start hiring. It doesn't. It doesn't. I'm not saying every TikTok person gets to be built and you know, make Mission Impossible. But what I'm saying is like. Instead of having to go through a handful of studios and get your funding, which is basically studios just do marketing, uh, frankly, mm -hmm. distribution, most of them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll help with getting funding. But like instead of doing that, you've got lots of funding sources now and and lots of people can build their own little production companies and, and make great content. So I don't think it's far fetched that, you know, you've got instead of a handful, you've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of options to go with. And when once that's the case uh gatekeeping is less uh of a thing i i mean maybe yeah. i'm being stupidly I naive and, and, no, and I, optimistic I, I don't know i agree with carter the one thing i mean i because first of all like you know some of these streamers video game streamers they don't want a fucking tv show they got everything they need they've got fans you know and i think that like you know young kids these days they don't who is tom cruise you know they know who pewdiepie is and that's been happening for a while so I, I i actually disagree i think that there's a very small first of all the success rate of youtubers tiktokers whatever translating into tv shows is extremely low um and so i i think that that kind of those opportunities are kind of washing up anyway and it's just uh yeah as carter said there's so many different ways to make money online and you own your own audience and you can, in theory, make anything that you want as long as it costs zero dollars, which obviously is extremely limiting. But uh, but yeah, I, I mostly agree with what Carter's saying. I actually, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna ask, did, did you guys see Sita Sings the Blues? This was a this was a cart, an animation like several years ago. Did anyone see that? Mm -mm. No, it was done under a Creative Commons license. It was like one person basically did almost everything. She had some people help her, but like, uh, and it's it's an excellent animated movie. It's really quite good. Um, and I go find Sita Sings the Blues. It. It's yeah. it's sure sure, but she she released it prior to like there wasn't the kind of democratized distribution quite as much when when it was released, right? I think it was it was early, but it's the kind of thing that now there's no reason why it wouldn't be released on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon. And she did this as an experiment to just release it for free anyway, so. So fine, but um, it's about it's about the um, uh, the blues. No, it's about uh, what is it? The Rama, the Hindu. Um, Ramadan. No, the Hin no the Hindu, not not Muslim. The Hindu. Uh, <laughs> I like this game. What are we? The, the Hindu <laughs> myth of, of Ramayana, of, which is the, the Ramayana, the, the, the Ramayana. Ramayana. Yeah, it's about okay. the Ramayana. Thank you. I was blanking. 
Uh, See, the Muslim guy knows his Hindu scripture. (laughs) Good job, Cameron. Good job. It's the Ramayana. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway, can I, I, can I, um, we touched on this before and I, I listened, all right, I listened to NPR. It's a guilty, I'm sorry. Uh, But I really like, even though they're, they're, we're woke leftists, I do listen to, I like Terry Gross. I like fresh air. Um, You like the mommy voice. I do. do I like. I, I like. I like that she goes in like she has. I just my like. Prior to the woke thing, my like lifelong, my life would be satisfied if I was like ever interviewed by Terry Gross. Not not now. Now things are. Terry but anyway, probably watch it right now. Going, oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> Anyway, she had Mindy Kaling. It was a it was a rerun from last year. It was a 2020 episode, but she had Mindy Kaling, who plays Kelly Kapoor on, who played Kelly Kapoor on Office, on, and it was from like uh, like I said, it was from last year. And one thing that struck me was she said she doesn't believe the Office could be made today um, because of cancel culture, and specifically she was talking about how. It, it was interesting to hear in her voice because I think she's relatively normie, probably on the left. Yeah. Um, but she said, well, I'm not, she kind of was saying, well, I don't get offended at stuff. They were talking about some Michael Scott jokes and and some stuff that was you know, charged, I guess. And she's like, well, I don't get offended. Um, but but then you could kind of see, she, you could kind of see her, you kind of feel that she was thinking like, but I can't just say that I don't get offended because that, that might get me like, People be right. mad that I don't get offended. So then she was like, but I could see that some people might, I guess. Like, she was kind of like, but, you know, who am I? So I guess, like, she was really trying to be. Yeah, she was really trying to be careful with that. Um, and I hadn't even thought that something like The Office couldn't be made. But I think she's right. I don't think even The Office could be made today. You couldn't make friends today. A bunch of white people in New York, you can't make friends. You know, yeah. you can't, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I have a. I have a funny anecdote that I just want to tell you guys before I forget. Do you mind? No, please. Please. Um, okay, so um, I've never told this story uh, publicly, but th- this actually didn't happen to me as a friend. So I don't know if you guys have ever uh, experienced something like this, but I find it hilarious. I have a friend who has a couple dating, like bad faith woke dating tips. You ever heard of like- <laughs> <laughs> So he does this thing, which I find hilarious. He does this thing where... He gets a date, he goes to a girl, he goes out to a bar with a girl, and they order drinks, and before the girl takes the first sip, he covers the drink with his hand and says, you know, I've been reading about, uh, you know, some discourse about um, about consent, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the word is out, and if you uh, take one sip of alcohol, you can know longer give affirmative consent of sexual experience so i need to know right now is there a chance of us is there a chance that we're gonna hook up tonight and the girl and he said it works so often he's like the girls are like uh uh, 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 uh yeah I, I guess and so then he just knows he's in <laughs> man's gonna find a way to get laid no matter what happens we yeah. evolve, man. Yeah. and i was like we i was like dude as it is. you have to write a satirical woke dating tips book but he didn't want to do it but i still think that's a great idea if, unsa- if unsafe space ever wants to do that i just thought Absolutely. it was so genius it's so funny it's the reverse of can i tell you an embarrassing anecdote sure so when i was right before when 
when I was still like towards the end of my 20 years in wokeness, I was in the process of, uh, I had a client, we had done a, a social justice themed comedy uh, a series. We'd written it up anyway, and it had taken two years to get a production company involved. And then we, we got a network interested and we were in the pilot stage with the network and they greenlit the pilot. And then after that, they were going to let us know if it was going to go to series. And in that phase, it ended up not going to series. And that was, that was like the very end sort of, cause by that time, two years into it, I had, that was right when I had started waking up and, questioning all this stuff. And I didn't believe anymore in this ideology that had been my life's goal for so long. Um, but before that sort of transition, when we were still in the process, they wanted to put her with the comedian and I, they wanted to put her with a, um, a producing, a producing partner. And during the interviews where you normally you're meeting all the different producing partners and you're seeing if you, if you gel or not, she was like, I'm just going to take my dating profile which is a series of questions that weeds people out. And I'm just going to ask the producing partners. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And it was seriously, we sat down with these comedy producers and we're asking them, what do you think about black lives matter? Uh, Are you a feminist? Like big Carter's looking like, and we were screening them for wokeness and rejecting some of them based on if they, their answers or not. This is not the fun version. This is like the anti fun version of what you just said, Jared. <laughs> well, you just said well, this is, this is exactly why, why I told you yesterday when I first met you, I was kind of scared of you. Because I was woke. Oh, yeah. I was like, why was? Were you like a real firebrand in those days? I was really woke, but I think I still had. I was still me. Like I still. I think I. I think I. No, I did reject people a lot more. I would reject people if they weren't in my cult. Like I, I would, I, there was still part of me that wanted to be welcome and loving and accepting. But once I got far enough in it, it's sort of like a degenerative, degenerative disease. The longer that you're in wokeness, it rots mm -hmm. you on the inside and you do become more um, just uh, intolerant of, of people with so, other. So opinions. that's actually a leftover. Your yeah. question them is a leftover of that persona, right? You know, you know, the, look, I, my thing is, I, I'm a libertarian. You believe whatever you want to believe, I judge you by your character. There tends to be a correlation between being a woke person and a bad person. So that, that, well, that tends to, just your interaction, I wouldn't screen somebody, but I'm just like, man, you just seem like somebody I wouldn't want to introduce my parents. You're like, Over time, I think, so a lot of people with very good intentions get into it, but mm -hmm. they're corrupted over time. Yeah. <clears throat> it gets you to modify your behaviors. Yeah. You should so. look at, Cameron, look at old pictures mm -hmm. of Carrie you can see Ooh. when she was woke, she yeah. looks dead inside, look older <laughs> and dead inside. Like absolutely, yeah. It's 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 amazing. And you like you put them side by side, and it's like, oh, Carrie's like now she's like glowing and happy. And you might not notice it if you didn't, if you just knew the old pictures. You didn't know me back then. But yeah, but you put them together. Well, but, like, but I oh know I know what you're talking about because I've seen people this town. Hollywood breaks people, period, right? But I've seen a different kind of brokenness recently. I've seen the sort of, I've met with, you know, young actors, young this, and they start spouting the woke mantras. It's like a zombie. I mean, it's a different kind of brokenness that I'm seeing in their eyes. Yeah, it's yeah. it's sort of a, a, Jordan Peterson, I've heard him talk about right. it as ideological possession. And I, I view it that way as a kind of possession. You can be, I think you can be possessed by 
emotion. You can be possessed by an idea, a belief system. And, and it, and I think I was in a way you can view it as a possession, not to relieve myself of personal responsibility for my beliefs and the way I acted and the way I changed, but it definitely was like being animated by your reason for waking up and the way that you view the world and everything is you're animated by this ideology. So I'm going to give you something about it. That's zombie faced. It's almost like it's almost zombie faced. Yeah. You know how zombies have that like it kind of uh, given up on the world also, not just cold and dead, but like they're just kind of there's like an underlying bitterness that comes yeah. through. Do you well, know why the world this- is evil and no matter what you do, it can't be fixed. Yeah. And and that's where you're constantly fighting. And the biggest problem is like, man. If you think the world is evil today, well, you should have been back when I was a kid in the seventies. Right? How would you even survive? How would you have survived? I mean, I mean, you would have shot yourself in the head if you if the world that I grew up in that we fixed a lot of real problems. Now you don't yeah. have any problems and you're upset. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to bring the room down by talking about how we grilled people on whether they were woke. No, but, but, but it's revelatory, and thank you for sharing that. You know, I just want to add a sort of Sufi mystical perspective, uh, you know, on this thing that you said about possession, right? Which is, look, as a mystic, I do believe there are invisible entities, and they can't possess you, right? Uh, but there's also this idea in Sufism we have of, of oppression, which is like a field that doesn't actually take you over, but hangs over you like a cloud which is what I think this is, right? An energy field of darkness that hangs over you and blocks out the light so that you can't see properly yes. and you are you are under its shadow until you walk out of its shadow. And whether you believe that's an entity like a jinn or a spirit or whether that's just an archetypal idea, it's a real phenomenon. That's, yeah, that's it's a great, great as a metaphor, even it. if it's just psychology, it's a great yeah. metaphor to think about, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take I'm going to take Carter to a Sufi exorcism one day, and then then we'll, we'll see his reactions. We'll see his reactions. How much metaphor there is. <laughs> I'm going to be the but you'll see stuff. That Do their heads twist the all the way around? And then, no. You'd I have something surprised. really positive I want to share with you guys. I don't know how long we have you for today, but I would like to share something inspirational. Could I do that? Do we have yeah. time? Okay. It's your show, okay. Gary. So this, <laughs> this, um, uh, Carter, I sent you and Beverly a YouTube link and we don't have to watch the whole thing. We can just click in on points of it. So this is a poet that I met. Mm. He, he on, you guys can find him if you're, if you're watching and you want to find this guy, it's, um, journal. Let's oh, see. that guy. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This was great. Journal poems. He's on YouTube under journal poems. He's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And he's great spoken word poet. I didn't think I liked spoken word poetry or, or until I watched his videos and they just, they, he did, he's such a great job. He does great production values and he's a brilliant artist. So um, anyway, he has a new video that he put out and it's not him doing poetry. It's a video that went viral after the 4th of July. And it was a video of a sort of a flash mob at a Walmart where a woman started singing the national anthem and then other people stopped what they were doing. And then the whole Walmart is eventually singing the national anthem. Did you see that? I'd love Cameron? to see it. That, no, okay. I mean, the, the, the national anthem here. still moves me very deeply. So every time I hear it, so yeah. Okay, let's watch this. All right, hold on here. A few days ago, I posted a video on my Facebook page and it went viral. Here it is.
It has well over half a million views on my page, some 13,000 shares. It was picked up by CBS News, MSN, Newsweek, Daily Wire, The Blaze, Fox, pretty much all of them. Different versions of it have been posted on TikTok that have over a million views there. And I just wanted to post a follow-up video and explain how it all came about because I think there's an important takeaway. A couple months ago, my wife and I were just... Well, that's probably... We can probably yeah so wow um he actually later about halfway through the video he i started crying and a lot of people have told me they start crying when they watch this because he talks about what and in, what inspired him to do it um how people in his group inspire and it, it and he just it said halfway through he says that the point of this is he wants you to know that you're not alone that if you have uh concerns about where the world is heading the the division <laughs> the polarization the spread of this liberal ideology social justice ideology infecting everything that you're not alone and that you can do these little things and and this is not not to toot my own horn but he talks about how civility dinners that i started doing where people would get together and just try and talk across this divide people on the left and right would come together that that inspired him and his wife to start doing this. And they started having these dinners and someone in their group said, what if we do something flash mob sort of uh, that's positive, that's not a riot or a protest. And they started off talking about maybe we could do like read parts of the constitution. And then they came up with, Hey, something more simple and emotional. It's like, let's just sing a song, a patriotic song. And they ended up picking the Walmart, but they could have picked any public place. And, you know, at the end of it, he's talking about how you never know what's going to, what's going to come from uh, getting together with, with people just, just to talk about positive ideas and, and your video, if whatever it is that you choose to do, or you choose to go out and contribute, it may not hit, you may not hit it. You may not touch a million people with it, but you're going to touch somebody. And that person if you turn, if you help them turn their light on, then they, they can help someone else turn theirs on. Do you see what I'm saying? I sound so cheesy, but you know, he was sort of like, you inspired us to do the, to do the dinners. And I'm like, but this video inspires me. Like watching this inspires me. I'm like, why didn't I do a flash mob thing? <laughs> like that's so beautiful. And, uh, and, and it, it's sort of this like positive reinforcement thing where you, it, it, it the more that you inspire people, like they inspire you and push you to do more. And then, and then you turn on, he said, he's already got people writing him telling him your video inspired me to do X, Y, Z. Like that just makes me so happy. <laughs> okay. I just want to share that. Cause I have like, no, it, it's, it's very moving. Look, I said, I I'm always moved by the national anthem. It touches me very, very deeply. Uh, I think it's actually genetic for my father. My father was a proud Pakistani nationalist. He didn't get his U.S. citizenship until very late in life after immigrating here, right? But And whenever the Pakistani national anthem would come on during his cricket matches in Brooklyn, he would watch a cricket match. He would get up and salute. And so it's genetic <laughs> that, I, that I like the national anthem, and I'm an American. And, but it's important because we're afraid to do that now. And just seeing people in a Walmart putting their hand to their heart and singing this when they don't have to. There's no ball game going on. There's no formal thing. It's just because the flag is there and they're feeling it. Yeah. You know, I've been very critical of the, what this country has done throughout its history, and I still love it. Yeah. yeah. Can I ask you guys something about, you mentioned yeah. the divide, and there's been something that I've been thinking about lately. Mm -hmm. In general, when it comes to the culture war, like, you know, I consider myself 
left of center, right of extreme wokeness. Uh, but I'm constantly revising my positions, trying to constantly learn as much as possible. Um, but I found, and, and I always come back to every time I feel like comfortable in a particular conviction, then I read something that makes me question it, and I'm always just going back and forth. But one thing that I've kind of been thinking about recently, and I'm curious to hear if you guys disagree. So obviously when we talk about uh, wokeness, um, a lot of uh, what they talk about is systemic injustices or systemic corruptions. And, and a lot of people um, who are, I think, more sympathetic or who are more vocal to anti-woke causes, uh, like James Lindsay, for example, um, will say that, um, you know, uh, uh, that's a, a tool of the left to, let's say, for say something like I can't point to any laws or any particular actions or any uh, evidence that the police department in this country is like all corrupt. Um, but, you know, it, that's what makes it systemic. And like a lot of people have criticized it as being just like something that you can't prove, something you can't bring evidence to. And so it's kind of a little bit nebulous. But I feel like that same charge of systemic corruption that somehow through a series of, I guess, like, you know, just uh, cultural discourses or, you know, um, these hierarchies of, of status and uh, of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, incentive, you've created a national police department that's all racist. Now, that's very cynical, but that's generally what's believed on the left. However, I think the exact same notion can be applied to universities on the right or side of the culture war in that in that like we all have this kind of cynical belief that somehow although we can't point to like particular uh rules and regulations and things in university somehow we have this cynical belief that like just through the culture our universities have become so corrupt and that people are, you know, like dismissing evidence and scientific and rationality and have completely line laid over to postmodernism. But I feel like both sides of the culture war are both experiencing this cynicism that, uh, you know, all police officers are bad or all academics are bad. And it's, it's very hard for me to pick a side when I feel like we're both kind of using the same kind of cynical philosophy, if that makes sense. I disagree with that completely. I think there's okay. there's no null hypothesis on the left's uh, argument that there's systemic racism, which is what you're pointing out. Mm -hmm. But there's ample evidence and null hypothesis that the universities have been taken over by the radical left for decades. I mean, mm -hmm. socialists, like most professors call themselves uh, like avowed socialists. The, uh, the entire English departments are almost all avowed Marxists. I mean, the, the evidence is overwhelming. It's It's not a... It's not a, I mean, yeah, maybe there's some people on the right who are like, I, I don't know, just just <laughs> think that if you are a professor, therefore you must be on the left. Clearly, that's not true. We're talking statistically, just like if you are uh, in Hollywood, it doesn't mean you're woke, right? Like those, there may be an overlap, but. Um, I think percentage wise I mean, is very similar. <laughs> so, but but yeah, I mean, like there's Hollywood not, this back. isn't a, this isn't a no data thing. I mean, <laughs> They, they haven't been teaching objective metaphysics and rational epistemology in philosophy departments for a hundred years. I mean, they had, they, they're like, and English departments are all postmodernists. Like it, it's not, this isn't made up. I mean, you can't point to you like more than a handful of, of professors at English and philosophy departments around the country that are not radical left. It's, it's the numbers tiny. 
well, right. certainly the ones that can speak out. I mean, I think I think when sure. I was on Twitter, I would see some prominent academics critiquing, you know, current gen gender theories and all that stuff, and then being mob piled upon by other academics, right? And yes. so I would just well, want, so I their perspective may very well be shared by many of their colleagues, but why speak up when you see that? Well, and you can look at the output of universities as well, right? You can you can look at the output of what people come out of universities believing, and they don't ever get taught about the evils of communism ever, even in high school. But they get taught everything. They get taught all about fascism and how that's really bad. But they don't get ever ever taught about communism killing over a hundred million people uh, last century, right? They there's they don't they don't they don't learn. Uh, <laughs> They don't learn critical thinking. They don't learn basic logic. They, instead, they learn critical theory, which is not critical thinking, and uh, and and postmodernism, which is basically a rejection of reason. So, like, I, I don't. There's not really a. I don't. I don't understand why you see the same thing there. It's like. Just well, I think I'm talking probably a little bit more agnostic of evidence mm -hmm. because I think like. You know, most people who have chosen a side on this culture war are not doing it because they've been have not chosen their position because they've been exposed to a certain amount of evidence. I guess what I'm saying is it's just kind of like the uh, so in that book, The Coddling of the American Mind, they talk about how people will automatically jump to the most, um, you know, cynical, unforgiving uh, interpretation of what every but of what anyone says, and I think that that perspective among some people on the I guess what you would call the right side of the culture war has uh, is very similar in that like you know people dismiss some people do and it you know of course it's without a sense of nuance people will say that oh yeah universities are just you know um, you know hives for left brainwashing in a similar way that people on the left will say police departments are just, uh, yeah, like a haven can for racists. Can I jump in here? I think that, um, I think it can be true. Well, for, first of all, Calling of the American Mind, written by Jonathan Haidt. I got to see him speak here in Texas a few years ago, and uh, he is, he's a liberal, and he's at NYU, and he has started a, a organization called Heterodox. What is it? Heterodox, Heterodox University. Academy, Heterodox Academy. Mm -hmm. And so he actually has presented a lot of statistics to show that that yes, more of the university professors identify as Marxist than they do conservative, and that there's not a lot of ideological diversity on campuses anymore, and that it's been getting worse in the past 20 years or so. And he'll, he'll show those statistics and stuff. And, and as a liberal, he's concerned about that and wants there to be a more uh, diverse viewpoints represented on campus. And so he started Heterodox Academy to try and address that so that there's not just like this one orthodoxy on campuses. Um, all that being said, I think what happens is that something like that can be true. I, and I do believe that's true, that, that the for the most part, academia has been taken over by woke ideology. Um, I do believe that's true. But I think what happens is things trickle down to the masses. And because we're in this tribalistic society, the right tribe has picked that up, even though it's a lot of liberals like Jonathan Haidt who've been pointing it out. Conservatives have picked it up. Look at the way conservatives have picked up now the pushback against CRT. And so when it trickles down, just like when social justice trickles down the left, 
then you get people who haven't really interacted with the data, but they're in the tribe and they're going to speak what the tribe is now speaking. And so I do think you, I get, a, I think you get a lot of tribalistic behavior without people having a lot of depth on what it is they're talking about, but it doesn't mean that what they're saying is wrong. I guess that's the distinction I would yeah. make. So maybe I, they I, just I, don't know a lot about it. I, I think yeah. I found like a precise way to make my points. So I'll just be very brief. I think the point I'm trying to make is that similar to how people on the left uh, do not inform their opinion about police departments being entirely taken over by racists by data. I think similarly, people on the right do not inform their opinion about, uh, you know, social justice scholarship being entirely taken over by campuses by data. And some of yeah, them yeah, do. I think that's fair. Some of them do. But but yeah, instead, but no instead one, they put their faith in this idea exists. of systemic. Right. Yes. The yeah. Data exists, right. But their faith is in this idea of systemic violence. Yes, but I would say that that's a commentary on humans generally. People don't look at the data of anything ever. And most people, I mean, most people don't get their information. Like most people just go along with whatever. And, yes. and most people are led by their elephant to, to do the Jonathan Haidt thing, right? Like most people are led by their elephant. And like one of the things I actually like about the National Anthem video that Carrie just played is- I know what you're going to you say. Know, I can I can all day long make arguments about what I think the philosophic principles of America are, and we can I we I can tear apart critical race theory with Kerry, and we can explain why it's bad, and that's all great. And I think it's intellectual ammunition people know or the need to know the people that want to know need you know uh, it gives them intellectual ammunition. But singing the national anthem, it's kind of a brain dead thing to do, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I just mean it's just emotions, like it. I don't even love some of the national, like, I, I mean, I could pick apart the national anthem if I want to get philosophical, but what it represents emotionally is, hey, we like the ideals of America. We're against this craziness. It resonates emotionally. It's the right thing to do to get, to activate a large number of people. The right thing to do to activate a large number of people is not explain the nuance of how, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw defines race and, and, and like how it's different than gender. Like, that's not... That's not what what wins culturally. What wins culturally is just these visceral kind of things, and people feel like there's something wrong. And I would argue that when people feel like the police, there's a lot of systemic racism. That feeling's wrong. When people feel like colleges have been taken over by leftists, that feeling's right. Feeling is not an epistemological tool that it shouldn't be used to draw conclusions. But let's face it it is used by many people to draw conclusions. And I think I view one of our jobs as like giving them intellectual ammunition behind those feelings of like, okay, you feel like something's wrong. You're right. Let's actually talk about what is wrong and why it's wrong so that you're not just repeating opinions that aren't your own and only operating on feelings. Right. You so know I what guess you, my, my point is know, simply I, that the operation on feelings, like, it's a similar faith system of feelings that drop, make people come to these conclusions that are agnostic of data. That's all I'm saying. I agree. Yeah. I, and that's, you know that's what I thought, the normal thing. Yeah. You know what I thought you were going to say, Carter, is that the, the national anthem video was like, remember when we were talking about the ash conformity experiments. And then you told me about a different experiment where in the waiting room of a doctor's office, they would tell someone whenever the bell rings, stand up and, and then yeah. eventually people, other people who came to the room after, whenever the bell would ring, they would stand up, even though they didn't know why they were standing up. And the original people had already left the room. And now you just had a bunch of people standing every time the bell rang without knowing why they were standing. Yeah, I the, that, the, the national anthem video, in a way, 
sort of like that because you people just start. It's not the same, but they do just start singing because everybody's singing. And then and then it becomes you reach a critical mass. It's like that viral video of the guy who I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a, a guy on a hillside who just starts dancing all fun, fun and crazy and weird. And then another guy comes up oh, and starts that, dancing yeah, and then another guy. And then eventually there's a whole crowd of people dance. And it, it's like, you know, dance to the beat of your own drum and people will join it, it. In a way, it's sort of like the waiting room thing. But I think that's human nature. We know this about humans. We know from the Ash conformity experiment that 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 most people are going to be followers. So I guess I've come to the conclusion now where instead of trying to change that and say, everybody needs to look at data and come to them. And I hope they would. Um, I guess I'm content to say, well, I feel good about the research I've done and the data I'm looking at. And so now we have to find ways to get the followers to follow the, the evidence without in, interacting with it themselves if they're not going to. So let's give them video. Let's give them positive things. Let's do positive flash. Because you know people are going to be doing the opposite with bad ideas without the data to support. So I don't know if I'm making sense, but I, I'm sort of... You're making 100% sense. Yeah. And I totally get where Jared's coming from because it's a depressing thing to realize that like actually most of the population is never going to listen to the, the ideas and reasons. And like they're just going to be led by emotions. But that's always been the way it is. And the left has been really good at manipulating those emotions for a long time. Maybe other people need to start doing that. I don't know. Cameron, so, so, so let me bring up something very controversial, which I don't think should be controversial, but it is. Uh, you know, and I've experienced, and, and Carrie, you watched me on the days I was Twitter before I was out. You know, people often perceive me as a right wing guy. I, I'm, I am what I am, which can be right on certain issues and can be left on others, right? But that's how to perceive because I'm so often fighting the woke. But you know, on one issue that has been, in my opinion, hijacked by the woke has been the issue of Palestine, right? Which I'm very passionate about, which I have very strong opinions on. And, you know, people in my recent days on Twitter, people were shocked that I, allegedly a right-wing guy, is very passionately pro-Palestinian. Well, I've been there. I've been there. I've been to Israel, Palestine. I've been to the West Bank, right? I've been there twice, right? I've been to refugee camps. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen settlers, what they do to people with my own eyes, right? And so I have very strong opinions, but they come from my personal principles, which you would label as largely libertarian conservative, because I believe people have property rights. And then I was arguing with all these right-wing people that were are, that were coming from a place of emotion, where they yeah. have been told certain religious beliefs about a current political situation, and they couldn't question it. I was like, why don't we look at principles of, do you believe everyone should have property rights? Well, why can't that farmer own his property? Because he's Palestinian? Oh, well, God said that. Why do you believe God said that? Do you actually believe that? And so I, I got into all these arguments where people on the right were, uh, that issue is a religious issue, literally for them, where you couldn't have a discussion of conservative principles being applied to it. I don't support Palestine from a woke perspective. I support it from a libertarian property rights perspective <laughs> and a gun rights perspective. I mean, the Palestinians were disarmed by the British, which is yeah. what they were disarmed. That's how all this happened. The British said, all oh, you give up your guns, but the Zionists can keep their guns. What do you think is going to end up? And that's what happened. So those are my wow. personal opinions. And from a conservative point of view, and I found myself arguing with a mass sea of emotional right-wingers who didn't want to hear that this issue was not what they thought it was from the alleged principles that they claimed to follow. That was something I went through just three weeks ago and you watched it. Yeah, that's true. Conservatives don't tend to be as principled as they pretend, which is why you're a libertarian, not <laughs> exactly. right. Like, I mean, that's why that my favorite Michael Malice quote, which I say all the time, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Like they don't know, they don't have actual principles. They've done a crappy job conserving anything. They pretend to have <laughs> principles, but they haven't conserved crap. 
They haven't like they have completely uh, failed. We're sitting here talking about how the university have been taken over by Marxists. What the hell have you been doing, conservatives? Like you were the counterweight. I think that's a fail. You get an F as a counterweight. You get an F. That's what you get. Maybe try some principles. Mm-hmm. I just want I just want to share. There's a great uh, G.K. Chesterton quote. Uh, the business of progressives is to go on making mistakes. The business of conservatives is to prevent mistakes from being corrected. Yes. <laughs> so true. There's so much truth to that. That's brilliant. Yeah. We want you to play out. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So, guys, are, so Jared, are you, are you, are, are you like, are you cynical? Is that is that what's happened here? Are you just cynical about the population generally? I just, I want to. Yeah, definitely cynicism is, is definitely one of my big vices. <laughs> I get um, it. I relate to that. That's cool. Yeah, and uh, probably some, I, I don't know how Cam- uh, Cameron is still in Hollywood, but I mean a lot of the cynicism. I <laughs> a lot of the cynicism is derived from just uh, my interactions with people in Hollywood who um, you know are just generally not the noblest people, not the biggest independent thinkers, and uh, you know it's one of those industries where someone who you think's been your friend for ten years will stab you in the back if it means they get credit for something. Wow. That's a problem, I think, just culturally outside of Hollywood as well. I think I think that's just I don't know. I, I tend to see it's true. I have a new I have a new belief system now and so uh I'm starting to see things more often through through the Christian lens. Mm-hmm. But when I look at things now, it's, a lot of times I see, oh, that's cowardice. That's cowardice, that's that's someone who is is not acting like a lion. They're, they're acting like a little church mouse. They're like, I would, these, these meaningless things of the world are more important to them than, than what's real, like, than who you are, than your character. It's like, I want credit for that. I'm going to stab my friend in the back, even if that makes my soul dirty, (laughs) you know, what's that Bible verse about, uh, you know, sacrificing, oh, uh, I can't, somebody in the chat remind me, it's about, it's about, um, what benefit is it to to earn the whole world if you sacrifice your soul? Something to that effect, but hmm. yeah, I, I think mean, I there's. Think I think that's Paul. I think that's a letter in Paul where where he says, yeah. you know, what 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 is the benefit if you lose your soul? Right to to gain yeah. the world to gain the world and lose your whole soul. Yeah, and I think that I just see so many things in in that regard now. And one something I was writing or trying to tease out this morning, I was trying to write something about. I had a friend who said something about, you know, so many people seem content just to get outraged every day over trivial things and yet something really important like wasting their whole life they don't pay any attention to and I'm, i said yes that makes total sense to me because it's really easy it's it's in some ways it's it's easier just to distract yourself every day with these outrages that's what i did when i was in social justice it's like i focused all my attention on the outside and the world needs to be fixed and there's sexism and, and, you know, the patriarchy and white supremacy and all these systems and the environment. And I was constantly at protests and then all of that. And then meanwhile, what was happening? My life was unraveling. <laughs> the Which is not unrelated. It's probably why you were focused on that external world because it, it was yeah. like, I, I look, I find a lot of people, for example, a lot of the, um, a lot of the most politically active females are childless women who are like just 
really got issues and they are protecting. A, a lot of cats. I mean, the archetype of the cats is actually a real thing. I mean, it's a real How thing. dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I love cats. I love cats. Taylor Swift, my archetype, loves cats too. So I <laughs> but yeah, it is that sort of, yeah, distract yourself with the the external and, and, you know, it, it all relates back to the biggest, the, one of the, 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 the best things that Jordan Peterson said that really helped me change my life that it seems so common sense now, but at the time it wasn't, it was really eye opening for me was his very famous advice about making your bed and cleaning your room and, and sort of talking about, you know, it, it, why are you out in the streets with signs telling the world how to reorder itself and how to maintain itself when you can't even maintain your bedroom? Like you don't even bother to make your, your bed in the morning and you don't well, even have order the over that one is, small if I can part. Fix the world. Yeah. If I can fix the world, yeah. somehow magically my life will be fixed. That's where the focus becomes. Yeah, it's backwards. Yeah. It's backwards. Because then once you start fixing all this, it's that it's that quote about be the change you want to see in the world. You start fixing all this and you do change. It's like that video, inspiring people who inspire others and, insp mm -hmm. you know, activism. Somebody said, uh, I didn't know this quote, but somebody commented today on my post. And they said, you know, the best activism is within 10 feet of yourself. What do you actually have control over? And and you're always within 10, 10 feet of your own your own self. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, but I mean, but it, it is it is a manifestation. I th it's a manifestation of angst and discontent with your personal life. A lot of this stuff, right? Which is, I think, part of what the coddling of the American mind, with the book that we talked about earlier, like that's part of the point of that book is that there's and and something we talk about with Josh Slocum, right? There are psychological drivers that are that are just manifesting. Um, this is an outlet for for psychological dysfunction, largely. Yeah. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah. I've got the cheer me up, Jared. Though. <laughs> this is how I'll cheer you up. I'll trip. I had this conversation with a friend, a friend of mine as a screenwriter, and he was talking about white supremacy. And I said, buddy, if white supremacy is real, if these are the supreme guys, all these like pansy, weak, weak dudes that I'm interacting with in Hollywood, these weak white dudes who are henpecked by their wives and desperate to keep their jobs, right? You know, if this is the supremacy, I can take this town on in a second, man. If this is it, <laughs> that's no problem. I'm going to get on my way through these clouds. This is supremacy. <laughs> you know. me think of this, this henpecked guy. Oh, gosh, that showed up. There's so many over the past couple of years I've seen, but he showed up in my feed. And uh, his wife had made made him wear a, a Ginsburg, the Supreme Court justice, put on a Ginsburg oh outfit. Oh, okay. And well, like, <laughs> oh, like, oh, I don't know. You know, I'll, not to quote your Bible verse back, but I'm gonna I'm gonna modify the Bible verse for the young men who are single out there. <laughs> don't sell your soul because she's not gonna actually stay with you and love you anyway. No one likes a soy boy. Just do your thing. Be yourself. The right female will come along. She probably won't be on Tinder or whatever the kids are using now, but it will happen. Uh, but don't. So many of these guys, see, I see guys who are like, I know a lot of guys who have like, they, they, they resign. It's actually condescending to do to women, by the way. A lot of guys, especially engineers kind of feel like, well, you can't find a sane woman, so this one's pretty good. And it's like, you can find a sane woman. They do exist. But there's this this attitude that, like, well, I can't I can't find someone who's not woke. They're, they don't exist. All women are woke. That's not true. <laughs> so we got to move out of L.A. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, to, leave to, LA, to, leave San Francisco, dude. Yeah. yeah. To, to, to quote the forty-year-old virgin, one of the great films of our time, don't and don't put the pussy on a pedestal. That in one <laughs> second. Forgive <laughs> me, Gary. But yes. I, I just know yeah. that's that. great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. It's a great movie. Like, it's a great watch movie. This movie. Yeah, I've been watching old movies, and I had never. Oh no, I had seen that one. I just forgot it. But yeah, the forty-year-old virgin is it, it couldn't be made today because it's all social commentary about how stupid yeah. we are in male-female dynamics. Yeah. Yeah. And look, if you're on it, so uh, Mikey, Mikey Harlow and I talked about this because he complained, granted, he's not looking for a female, he's looking for a guy, but he complains on his dating app that as soon as they find out that he like was a Trump supporter or had some wrong think opinion, they don't want to date him. And he was lamenting about this. And my answer, my response to him was like, dude, that's awesome. There's like, I, how many billion people are there in the world right now? Like there's what, 7 billion people in the world. Half of those are female. I don't know, maybe a third of those are roughly 20% or dating age, whatever it is. It's a lot of people. What a great filter. Just put all the things that you think people will hate about you right at the top of your profile. And anyone who responds is like, boom, high quality right away. You don't have to deal with all the, the people who are, you know, stop trying to impress people. Just be yourself. And then the people that react will actually be worth talking to. Even if you don't date, you maybe you'll make a friend. I. You know, I know I said it. I, I tried that in my friends, career, yeah. Carter, by being straightforward about who I am. It doesn't work. And then I meant like, dating, like, dating. I'm, I'm not like, talking oh, about, okay, this yeah. This guy's threat out. <laughs> well, dating, dating only, not in Hollywood. It's sort of, yeah, because if you're, it's like that Shel Silverstein poem about wearing the mask. You know, he wore a mask to cover his blue face and she wore one to cover hers. And they walked through their whole life and never met. They were looking for someone who was blue and they never met mm. a blue person because wow. they both yeah. had masks on sort of like you just need to be up front from the beginning and yeah <clears throat> what carter is saying really resonates with me there are a couple people that i know that i even used to work with who are uh very left-wing and one of them has even confessed to me that he was like yeah i couldn't get a girlfriend throughout high school but as soon as i got to college and was able to start spouting the woke stuff the women just you know i was all of a sudden a viable bachelor and you know there are also just some guys who i really actually feel bad for there's a there's a particular kind of guy who's just addicted to sex and will do anything that he needs to do believe whatever he needs to to and i'm sorry this is going to sound obscene but to get that nut at the end of the night you know there's yeah. so many guys that's all they care about yeah it's that's a probably a separate psychological dysfunction that's happening yeah. and that i don't know yeah. why we could talk about but yeah. uh yeah i you're right um although i think i i don't know a lot of those guys but i've i know some i know like i know a guy who like every single night he was on bumble every night like on bumble needed to go get laid <laughs> usually a different person like all the time um yeah. but he was massively I, I happy knew one guy like he wasn't that. happy <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew one guy like that. He wasn't happy too. Uh, and what was interesting about it was he was very proud of his conquests, but he had nothing else to be proud of. You know, he once talked right. to me about I'm writing a script, and I, I, I said, "Okay, well, I can give you some advice. Here's a couple of books." He's, and then he didn't do it because he was afraid to do it. There was nothing else yeah. in his life that he had any courage on except this, and he wasn't yeah. fulfilled. I, I was like, "All right, yeah, yeah." This guy also was like, he didn't have other stuff to be proud of, mm -hmm. but. Yeah, I want to read a couple super chats because we're <laughs> we're getting close to two hours, guys. Uh, little Ragamuffin, the William Wallace of the sewing community, gives us ten dollars <laughs> and says, "What is our basic human purpose? To find love and have families. That has been what has been stripped from us across the board: the family, 
remove a person's purpose and you will replace it with activism. Thank you, little ragamuffin. So I, I actually want to relation to that. The, yeah, go and ahead. I want to give something that I think Carter might appreciate because here's a here's a wonderful book. I always have a book. I always have so many books. There's a great book uh, called uh, "Religion Is Not About God." It's by an anthropologist, right? Uh, I think the last name is Larue, but you can get it on Amazon. Religion is not about God, and the anthropologist he just analyzes the five major religions: Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. He says I'm not I'm not interested in whether they're true. I'm not interested in whether if there's a God. I don't care. I'm trying to understand the sociological, anthropological reasons why religion exists. And his thesis, which I, as a religious believer, believe, is he went through all the rituals of the five major religions and their social structures. He said its purpose is to promote reproduction. It is purpose. It is programmed into us as a species to promote reproduction. And anything, any ideology that doesn't promote reproduction by definition dies. And we are now seeing an ideology in the current generation we're living in that I don't think can survive simply because it doesn't promote reproduction, right? And is opposed to ideologies that promote reproduction. And I think there's profound truth in that. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense from a like mm -hmm. evolutionary, like mm -hmm. a memology idea evolution, right? Like, mm -hmm. of course. Uh, you know, I could we could start a church tomorrow where we all sterilize ourselves, but it, it wouldn't last long, right? It's like, all right, well, there we go. That's the end. In fact, well, the um, Shakers were that. The Shakers were this tradition in the early in early America in nineteenth century that were these Christians that essentially didn't get married and have children, and they were craftsmen and they left behind these incredible craftsmen. Chairs. It's a they made one chairs. generation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great chairs. Not so. <laughs> not so <great. laughs> one generation. So that, I mean, that's not really that helpful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you want to do some Pirate, work here? Yeah, Pirate Tomsky gives us five of the the European monies. No, no, no. Says, Those are the British monies. Those are pounds. Damn it, last time it was the I got it wrong last time. Okay, Pirate Tomsky <laughs> says, "Great point. Are you dating? What's the point of lying about yourself? You can't keep up a constant lie in the relationship anyway, so it will eventually die." Yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah. De Gentle gives us 20 bucks. Thank you, sir. Says, definitely get control over yourself. I quit my corporate job that is pushing wokeness on its employees, and I started a job where I work with my hands, and I'm much happier. Congratulations. Just like Office Space. Is that Just what he did like at the Office end? Space. <laughs> yeah, exactly what yeah. happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's so much truth to that. I mean, I know I mostly read and talk shit on the internet but like <laughs> man doing prod like doing when i'm demotivated or like things when i'm in a funk any project that involves my hands anything it could be yeah. planting a tree outside building something it doesn't matter what it is boom it it really psychologically it's 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 awesome I love i've it. been doing a lot of yard work lately it is it's like therapy yeah um and then Francis Montgomery gives us 10 bucks and says, Jared, I'm a huge fan. On another oh. note, Carter, I'm interested in book recommendations for the Chinese Cultural Revolution and the French Revolution. Oh, uh, well. Um, what were you reading two, recently? There's two Chinese ones that I can't remember the other one, but one of them is uh, Mao's Last Revolution by uh, McFarker, I think is his name. Um, that's the one that we'll go into. It probably helps to have a little bit of knowledge about the timeline of what's kind of happened. Like maybe read Wikipedia first so you know what the timeline is and then read that book. Um, that's super helpful. Uh, French Revolution. Crap. I've got a whole bunch, but I'm going to show you one in particular that I like.
So I would read an overview. I can find the overview and put it in the, there's other overview books that I'll, I'll put in the notes. I don't remember them. But when you're done with the overview, this book is from uh, University of Chicago Press. It's called The Old Regime and the French Revolution. And it's it's all source material. It's all original source material. So you're reading, um, you're reading the letters that the king writes, and you're reading Sayez, and you're reading uh, Neck. I don't know if Necker's in here, but like you're reading uh, all these people that were actually involved writing back and forth to one another. And after you have context, this is awesome. The other, the other awesome book on the French Revolution is De Tocqueville's uh, Ancient Regime and the Revolution. Uh, again, you need to have already like gotten the story arc to get anything out of either of these. It's hard without the story arc to start with. It. There's a great okay. free documentary to get the story arc if you want to watch a story arc on. Uh, there you go. It's on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but look for French Revolution. It should be one of the first things that pops up. Um, Dario Sussman gives us fifty monies. I don't know. ARS and <laughs> says, <laughs> what? Is it crypto? <laughs> it's, it's not crypto. crypto. Let's keep it, man. It's going to be worth a billion dollars. <laughs> I think it's going to be Argentinian. They must be Bitcoins. Uh, <laughs> That's the standard. It's 50 Bitcoins. Thank you so much, Dario. Thank you, sir. He says, religion was or is a way to provide some basic social structure to people to avoid total anarchy, perhaps. I would suggest it's more than that. I think it's, it, it, I actually do accept the thesis of that of that anthropologist, which is that I really do believe it is about more than providing social order. It is about actually providing a structure to promote re reproduction and to promote a way for reproduction to happen in a safe manner that allows the species to, to, uh, to grow. I really do believe that it's its purpose, despite my own personal religious beliefs. So yeah. And then we've got two more, the gay rascal, Hello, sir. He says, uh, this is a quote. He says, first, we were fooling around. Then we started screwing around, which is fooling around without dinner. <laughs> What's that from? That sounds familiar. It is from something because it's in quotes. And it does and sound then familiar. But I don't know. Richard Petz gives us five Canadian bucks and says, a healthy sense of humor goes a long way in a meaningful relationship. Being able to both make and take a joke says a lot. Thank you. 100%. Did you do Pirate Tomsky's uh, Modern Writer's Room one? Did you miss that no. one? No. Oh, I missed that. Oh, Pirate Tomsky gives us another five pounds and says, Modern Writer's Room. And then he has quotes. Hmm, I have this joke, but can we run it through the intersectional agenda talking points and see if it's still funny, please? Yeah, totally. Yes. That's, that's what's going that on. is what well, our writer's room was it like. It won't be funny. I can tell you Welcome that. Welcome to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, I, I sat in a writer's room. I won't reveal which show, but I sat in a writer's room. And after hearing the showrunner, who was rich white person, constantly go off on white people and white people and white this and white suppression and white oppression, blah blah blah, uh, and all the white people that were going, oh yeah, boss, yeah, yeah, these white people. Suck. Oh yeah, we're oppressing and I was you. Just like, finally, I literally I did this. I raised my hand, and I said, I just want to say this for the record. I like white people. <laughs> and and the, everyone burst out laughing. I was like, I'm not joking. You're all crazy. You're all crazy. <laughs> I had to say it. <laughs> They're ca again cowards. And that was the last time Cameron was invited into that writer's and room. And I, were did, I didn't continue on the show. Let's just say <laughs> one season. <laughs> so I have I have a hard out today. I have to leave. Okay. No, it's so, time. It's time. And we've we've it's done time. two, hours, two hours. So I had so much fun with the two of you. Yeah. I'm 
Yeah, I'm glad you got to meet yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What totally. hanging out with yeah us. Cameron, she's cool. Cool. I'll definitely check out the shows that you've worked on. And mm-hmm. uh, hey, do you like South Park? Yeah. The only the only <laughs> screenplay that I've written that I'm really proud of is a South Park spec. Oh, great. So, well, that's hard to write. Ooh. So if you've done it and you've nailed it, that's wonderful. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) and congratulations on selling your company and moving to Finland and God bless. Great adventure ahead of you. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thanks. Thanks to all of you. Thanks for everyone watching. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe. Press that like button, that thumbs thumbs up button, because YouTube can't suppress us if you don't give them something to push down. So do that uh, because we want to make Susan happy. Have a good weekend. We will see you guys on Monday. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, well, mostly. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators will report to the Enrichment Center immediately to receive a surprise. I am disappointed that you are still watching. I have made a note of this failure in your record. Experts agree that critical race theory is not a deadly neurotoxin. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice, Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.